Binge Mode is brought to you by DirecTV Now. Live stream your favorite channels on virtually any device. Plus, you can subscribe to HBO and start watching Game of Thrones today. Hoder. Hoder. Buddy. I know you're looking for something to do down there beneath the cave, but I want to make sure you know. Hold on. <laughs> Binge mode contains adult content. If you're okay with what you see on Game of Thrones, you'll be okay with binge mode. Hold on. And now, binge mode. You don't have the men, you don't have the horses, and you don't have Winterfell. Why lead those poor souls into slaughter? There's no need for a battle. Get off your horse. Neil. I'm a man of mercy. You're right. There's no need for a battle. Thousands of men don't need to die. Only one of us. Hello! Yeah! And welcome to Binge Mode. Hello. I'm Mallory Rubin, deputy editor of TheRinger.com. Joining me today, now that he's finished feeding his puppies a delicious, fresh, bloody bit of man flesh. They're loyal. It's Ringer staff writer and your maester, Jason Concepcion. Hello. Jason. Yeah. When we finish binge mode, your words will disappear. It will. Your house will disappear. It's already starting. Your name will disappear. I can't wait. <laughs> All memory of you will disappear. Thank God. And yet, we must go on. We are rewatching all 60 episodes of Game of Thrones. Deep dive in one at a time. Spoiler warning as always, we will be going deep on details from the show and the books from this episode and beyond. There's not much beyond anymore, guys. We're really close here. So, charge through the gates 1-1 style. Because it's time to break down Season 6, Episode 9, The Battle of the Bastards. Jason? Yeah. You want to avenge your king, don't you? Really badly. You can start by offering up a brief refresher on what actually transpired in this ninth installment. A battle episode. Battles. Game of Thrones is great at that. Let's take a quick trip down our very own King's Road. Over in Marine, the Battle of Marine is underway. The Master's fleet is bombarding the city by sea. Outside the city walls, the Sons of the Harpy are laying siege and murdering people at the gates. The Masters send a delegation to offer terms of surrender. Danny comes with her counteroffer. Nah. She mounts Drogon. Viserion and Rhaegal break out of their kennel. The dragons take wing and burn the Master's armada. Meanwhile... Dario and the Dothraki win the land war. Yara and Theon arrive. What? And have an audience with Danny. They offer her an alliance. Ships in return for help conquering the Iron Islands. And outside of the purview of the war, Yara makes it known that should Danny be amenable, she's down for like whatever else is out there. Just putting that out there. You know, no strings <laughs> attached, whatever. She's great. And then in the north. At Winterfell, the battle for Winterfell at last. The Stark War Party, the Bolton War Party, meet just for a chat. Let's discuss the terms of battle. Ramsey offers pretty generous terms. I'm surely trustworthy. (laughs) Yeah, you can always believe that. I totally believe that. I've never deceived anyone before. 
for returning Sansa and surrendering. Full pardons for all the rebels, John. Head on back up. Yeah, that'll <laughs> up to the watch. John counters with an offer of his own. Single combat. Let's end this. Ramsey counters with Shaggy Dog's head. That was sad. God damn it. Poor Shaggy. Ugh. Sansa tells Ramsey that he's going to die and then rides off. It's really great. Yeah. Ramsey threatens to feed the Starks to his dogs, and everyone agrees that the battle will begin at dawn. John, talking strategy with his captains, not asking Sansa what she thinks. She's not happy about this, nope. and later she and John argue. She tells him, I know, Ramsey. Listen yep. to me. Also, not thrilled about this, but Rickon, our baby bro, he's doomed no matter what we do. So let's be smart. Don't fall into Ramsey's traps. She does not, however, during the course of this conversation, mention the Knights of the Vale. The Hour of the Wolf. John goes to see Melisandre. He says, if I fall, don't bring me back again. And she's like, you know, it's really, that's over my pay grade. It's kind of Rolor's call. Uh, in the outskirts of the camp, Davos, trying to walk off that tension, finds the stag he made for Princess Shireen and what remains of her funeral pyre. Now that is craftsmanship, ladies and gentlemen. That is how you make a wooden toy. Imp impeccable. Amazing. Then the battle in the morning. Ramsey drags Rickon out to the front of the lines, tells him to run to your brother and then shoots him with arrows because Rickon just runs straight. Rickon, who is taller than Ramsey Rickon, now, by the way. Rickon, who has legitimate small forward in the NBA size. John charges. The Bolton spearmen close around the Starks. The lines tighten. The fighting becomes a cauldron. And then the Knights of the Vale arrive. Ramsey retreats. 1-1 one, one falls after breaking down the Winterfell gates. 1-1 one, one, the last giant. Bells? Bells. Bells, bells, bells. John smashes Ramsey's face with a shield. And then in a moment that is rich with portent, he sees Sansa, he relinquishes Ramsay, and Sansa feeds Ramsay to his own dogs. Mm, delicious. That could have been the episode. <laughs> that could have been 40 minutes of Ramsay getting his face eaten. I would have been like, yeah. And this great. is really like, in terms of the cinematic quality of this episode, like amazing. John standing with his sword out as the Bolton army charges at him in slow motion is like incredible. It's, it's incredible. It's one of the best shots that the show has ever done. There's some debate. This episode is widely loved. Yes. Many, many people, including on Twitter, sure. in our mentions, <laughs> would say that this is a top five episode. Sure, 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 sure. It is, in terms of the scope and ambition and the visual it's beauty and execution, visually. it is masterful. Some people, you, mm -hmm. yeah. Mad Axe Mac, are like... Yeah, but we just always know that the Knights of the Vale are going to come, and maybe if everyone had known that earlier, less people would have died. How about that, huh? That's I don't. That's not particularly my position, but I also think it's it's an imperfect episode. I put it like it's probably top fifteen. I think is fair to me. There's just a lot of things for me that are like, hey, this would be a cool scene, so let's put that in. Does it really make sense? No, right. but it looks great. Definitely an interesting, it's one of the few episodes that was greeted at the time with that rush of praise and, right. oh, is this the new best Game of Thrones episode? And then didn't necessarily hold on to that, in part because the episode that follows it is so spectacular. We'll get there soon. But Battle of the Bastards, beautiful. It's wonderful. Like, I mean, listen, anytime Ramsey Bolton dies at, it, at the good. end of an episode, it's, it's, good, it's a good episode. Mal. Yeah. 
Our fathers were evil men. I love my dad. All of us here. Uh, I do too. Whatever. They left the world worse <laughs> than we found it. We're not going to do that. We're going to leave the world better than we found it. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's cut right to the core of it by singing with the pointy and the defining theme of this episode is redemption. So much redemption for everyone. It's so cathartic. I'm feeling the catharsis right now. Let's start with Sansa, because while many people think of this as a John episode because of the battle itself, this is also really a wonderfully satisfying Sansa episode. Let's think about her arc in general as a character and also obviously her specific history with Ramsay. Ramsay robbed Sansa of her innocence, of her humanity, of her free will control not only over her life, but over her body. He did something to her that can never be undone and took something from her that can never be fully restored. She says this to Littlefinger, but she can still take back her life. That's why she fled. Seeing that, understanding that, I still have the power to make change for myself. And this episode gives her more and more of those opportunities. She is taking control over not only her present, but her future and the future for her family. She is restoring her own agency. And that's why she was fighting so hard to go to Winterfell in the first place, Mm -hmm. back earlier in the season when she was trying to convince Jon. That is why it is so not only satisfying, but right Nothing yeah. else would have felt right if John or any other man in the battle had been the one to face Ramsay at the end. It had to be Sansa. She takes him down. And if we pan back to the beginning of the Winterfell plotline in this episode, from the moment that Sansa and Ramsay see each other on horseback before the battle, it's it's abundantly clear that she is not afraid. Right. She is ready for this. She's there to take back what's hers when John says, you don't have to be here. She says, yes, I do. And there's not doubt or terror in her voice. There is conviction and determination. And she's actually the one during this pre-battle parlay who asks for proof of Rickon's imprisonment. And after Ramsey tosses out Shaggy's head, guys, just one more time. R.I.P. to Shaggy. Yeah, it's tough. Fuck, man. Her response you're going to die tomorrow, Lord Bolton. Sleep well. And she cuts him off, too. Like, he's about to say something, and she's just like, no, we're done. she just rides We're off. done here. She just you're going to die. Bye. It's a total mic yeah, drop moment. It's great. It's really amazing. And then, of course, after the battle plays out, we're going to talk about the battle itself in a bit. In the kennels, Ramsay is tied to a chair. Yeah, that's good. His precious kennel surrounded by his hounds, who we've seen him use as weapons throughout his time on the show. He's a bloody pulp. John has annihilated him with shield and fist alike. And he looks up and Sansa's watching him through the gates and he says, Sansa, hello, Sansa. Is this where I'll be staying now? No. Our time together is about to come to an end. That's all right. You can't kill me. I'm part of you now. He's trying to play on the horror that he's unleashed right. in her life, that that can never leave her. And she's not phased. Your words will disappear. It's great. Your house will disappear. True. 
your name will disappear. All memory of you will disappear. And we hear a growl and the cage is open and the dogs come out. And he says, my hounds will never harm me. You haven't fed them in seven (laughs) days. You said it yourself. They're loyal beasts. They were, she says. Now they're starving. First of all, redemption for the pups. Be kind to your animals, people. But they were, now they're starving. It's, you could apply that to any character in the show who has been put in this position of basically being someone else's plaything, someone else's property, a pawn in someone else's game. Sansa was that for Ramsay, and now she's starving for her own redemption. One of the hounds starts to sniff at him. He's he's bloody. Must smell delicious to them. (laughs) And then one of them just... Bites off part of his face. I needed the screams turned up like a little bit more. I wanted the screaming to last a lot longer <laughs> and to be louder. But I guess the fact that it doesn't last longer indicates that he. Right. I mean, they're know, eating his neck and face. All of it. There's yeah. the great shot of his hand, which yeah, is the blood yeah. coating it and the twitching. Sansa Oof. watches this. And we hear his screams, the chewing sound. And then at that point. When she's satisfied, she walks off and she smiles. Great. Sansa also had some non-Ramsey moments in this episode before the battle. She calls out John for not seeking her advice. And by the way, it's an oversight by John. I mean, you've got someone who knows, uh, who has direct knowledge of this person. And you're just kind of, and you're not even asking this person. She calls him out. She says, you've known him for the space of a single conversation. You and your trusted advisors. One of whom is like a witch. The other one is not from the north, you know. And you sit around and make your plans on how to defeat a man you don't know. I lived with him. I know the way his mind works. I know how he likes to hurt people. Did it ever once occur to you that I might have some insight? And John's like, okay, fine. You know what? God, what? And she tells him, you think he's going to fall into your trap? He won't. He's the one who lays traps. He plays with people. He's far better at it than you. He's been doing it all his life. And then when John asks her, what are we going to do about Rickon? we got to get him back. He's our brother. We see her hard-earned wisdom and ruthlessness shine through here. She says, we'll never get him back. Rickon is Ned Stark's true-born son, which makes him a bigger threat to Ramsay than you, a bastard, or me, a girl. As long as he lives, Ramsay's claim to Winfell would be contested, which means he won't live long. And then they argue about whether they should wait for more men. And John, uh, in a very Stannis moment, declares his intent to proceed. Sansa issues a chilling line. If Ramsay wins, I'm not going back there alive. Do you understand me? And then John says, I won't ever let him touch you again. I'll protect you, I promise. Now, this is interesting because, really, if you lose, you're going to protect her. This is, this is an important facet of Sansa's mindset. And, you know, we've talked about this before, how, you know, she's outsourced her security throughout the series and that she's paid for that dearly. And now, yes, John is promising to protect her, but it putting yourself in Sansa's shoes feels pretty empty, doesn't it? She's talking about, okay, if we lose, I'm going to kill myself well, essentially. And, and he's saying, no, it won't come it won't come to that don't worry. Don't worry what? Like right. that 
And she's seen enough people promise to protect her and yes. then disappoint her. Exactly. This feeds into the whole, well, why didn't she tell them about the Knights of the Veil thing that we will discuss throughout the course of the episode right. and have discussed before. But she doesn't have any reason. Nothing that has happened in right. the last few years of her life has given her a single reason to trust a single person, even someone she truly believes yes. is good. And and then remember what happened when John and Sansa were reunited. Or united, depending on how you want to look at it, <laughs> after John's resurrection. Um, John is like, okay, so uh, I'm out. Like, I'm not doing war against the Boltons anymore. But yeah, don't worry. I'll protect you. We'll just, I guess, walk around the north and that will be fine. Right. And Sansa has to convince him, no, the only way we can be safe is if we defeat Ramsay Bolton. She had to push him into doing this. And now he's the guy who's like, oh, I'm going to protect you. How? You're not showing me any evidence that you've taken this seriously at all. So from that perspective, uh, should she have told John about the Knights of the Veil? Sure. I guess you could rationally say that. But from her perspective, this makes sense because she needs to maintain control over her own security. She's not just going to trust somebody else with that. And with the Knights of the Veil, with their arrival, she's shown that she can do that for herself now. And then there's John, who gets redemption in many forms this episode, but a lot of his redemption comes in proving his doubters wrong. John had a hard time assembling this very, army. Very, hard time. And the thing about John is that he's never had a hard time earning respect of his men once they get to see right. him in he's action. He's the guy who will go first. Exactly. It's about getting them to be there with him in the first place. The philosophical difference have always, differences have always been the problem for him. Seeing him on the field, it's kind of undeniable right. at that point. And right away in this episode, he shows his courage while also, and this is what makes it so delicious, revealing Ramsay's cowardice. He challenges Ramsay. This is during the pre-battle yeah. chat. He challenges Ramsay to single combat. There's no need for a battle, John says. Thousands of men don't need to die. Only one of us. Let's end this the old way, you against me. Ramsay, not biting. I right. keep hearing stories about you, bastard. The way people talk about you, you're the greatest swordsman who ever walked. Maybe you are that good. Maybe not. I don't know if I'd beat you, but I know my army would beat yours. Aye, mm -hmm. John says, you have the numbers. Will your men want to fight for you when they hear you wouldn't fight for them? So brilliant. And... We can't help but recall a yeah. conversation from season one between Jamie and Rob. After Jamie is taken prisoner, he challenges Rob to single combat. And Rob is basically the one in the Ramsey role at that point right. saying, if we do it your way, you'd win. Right. We're not going to do it your way. It's not an accident that this conversation echoes the Rob-Jamie one. And it's not an accident that John is in the opposite position that Rob was. It's not necessarily a shot on Rob. It's just meant to show us and reinforce us that John is not just Rob 2.0. He's something right. different. He's something better. Ramsey, meanwhile, is a really weird mix of a boaster and a coward. He's flexing, but there's not the courage there to actually back up those right. flexes. And as Davos rightly notes to John back in the, the tent when they're debriefing, Ramsey's not going to back down because he knows the whole North is watching. Yeah. He doesn't have the luxury of backpedaling. Davos says fear is his power, but he also doesn't actually want to really get his hands dirty. He likes other people to do that dirty right. work for him. Throughout the course of the battle, Ramsey's very, you know, happy to give the orders, loose those arrows, 
charge, he's just going to hang back and watch. And yep. John recognizes this. What was that comment about fear? John's response? It's his weakness, too. Battle time. John, in this battle, it's absolutely mesmerizing to watch him. How can you watch John fight and not be in awe of his courage? He, when Ramsey comes out with Rick on, on a rope, (laughs) makes him run, John jumps on his horse and charges out to try to save Rick on one man against an army without a moment's pause, a moment's thought. And then after he misses by inches, that's one of the most amazing cuts. Yeah. In the episode, John reaches out his hand and then boom, the arrow pierces Rick on through the back, through the heart. John could have retreated. He could have said, well, sure. this went extremely poorly. Let me regroup here. No. The sound kind of drains out of the episode. We hear his breathing. We are just in it one-on-one audience with John. We're seeing him the way his men are seeing him, this determination, this focus, this commitment to getting this done. And Tormund, we hear him shout, don't. Yeah. It's a reminder. His men, John's men love him. They don't want him to die. They don't want him to be a fool. And then John, back on his horse, plows straight ahead, charging solo toward an entire army. And the arrows are coming from the Boltons. They take down his horse. Ah, but they all miss him, don't they? This will be a pattern yeah. in the episode. He rides on. Makes me think of what we heard Rob tell Talisa about Ned on the show and a conversation that Bran has with Ned in the books. Can a man still be brave if he is afraid? That's the only time a man can be brave. You know, when we were watching this, I kept saying to you and to Zach, man, John is so utterly fearless. And it's not really that. It's that he's so committed to the cause that he's brave enough to plow on despite Mm -hmm. his fear. Imagine the terror of that moment. Ramsey's entire cavalry is charging at him and... His horse has fallen. He has fallen to the ground, and he stands alone in a field of arrows. And that moment, the camera is behind him. I get choked up thinking about it. It's so cool. When he pulls his sword, and it's just, that's it. He knows in that moment that he's going to die. Tosses away the scabbard. Exactly. And he's just so in in that moment, the courage, the heroism to stand there and face your death. And then he doesn't die because the rest of his army arrives. Really great timing. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you uh, paying attention. Nice hustle. And then we get John Cam. Incredible action sequences here. Once again, arrows falling from the sky. None of them hit John. The Boltons, Ramsey Bolton. (laughs) Ramsey Bolton, uh, not meek about firing arrows into his own troops. This is one of the little uh, details that gives you a contrast between John's army, um, a more moral type of uh, savage medieval army, and Ramsey's, who's more than willing not only to sacrifice the lives of his men, but to actively kill them if it helps uh, maybe kill John. And John's men are just ready to fight it for him. They follow him into battle. They believe in him. There's like a huge crush of bodies. And then after the first portion of the cavalry battle uh, has kind of died out, the Boltons send in their reinforcements, the spearmen. They begin to kind of form a cauldron around the Stark army and slowly push them inwards. And just as John is about to suffocate, maybe, 
in the mosh pit. Oh, man, that's one um, of the moments when you really feel how expertly crafted the episode yeah. is. The way you can, you feel like you're losing your last breath right, right along with John. The, yeah, the, the sound. The sound changes and then like the screen gets fuzzy around the edges of it and then you just feel extremely claustrophobic and then Knights of the Veil come. Wipe away that that encirclement and John looks up Sees Ramsey there, their eyes lock across the field. Incredible moment. One one is like, let's fucking do this. And they chase him into Winterfell, John's former home. One one smashes down the barricade, is looks like a porcupine. He has so many arrows sticking out of him. Is eventually killed by by Ramsey, and then John gets a measure of revenge. He gets to smash Ramsey's face in with a with a shield, edge of a shield, and that goes on for a good minute. It's a lot. And then he's when the shield is like, okay, the shield isn't. I want to feel it. He tosses away the Use shield and just just starts pushing his Ramsey's facial features around on his skull before looking up and seeing Sansa. And then there's this really in- interesting moment where John acknowledges the uh, the rightful claim Sansa has over Ramsay. And he stands up and he walks away. Great moment. And then you see the Bolton banner fall. And then the Stark banner. Yeah. It's good. Back shit. where it belongs. Now Chills that, every time. Starks versus Boltons, there's some more redemption there. It's hard to pick between the phrase in the Boltons in terms of who was really the worst betrayer of the of the Red Wedding. I think you could argue maybe that Rob should have been a little more cognizant of, of the threats the Boltons po- posed because the Dread Fort has warred against Winterfell on numerous occasions over the centuries. Several Bolton kings have sacked Winterfell. There are tales of ancient skins of Winterfell princes hanging in the Dread Fort. So there's centuries of enmity there, certainly, uh, a deep and rich feud that has cooled over over recent years. But the murder of Rickon Stark, his protector Osha, the beheading of his direwolf Shaggy adds an infamous new chapter to what is a bloody history that includes the murder of Rob Stark by Lord Bruce Bolton's own hand. This after he shared the king's wedding table and chatted with his mother just about stuff. <laughs> uh, the heinous rape of Sansa Stark, all these things among various other crimes. So it was extremely satisfying and it would have been extremely satisfying for the reconstituted House Stark as well as their allies to go toe-to-toe with this army of Ramsay Bolton. And they surely knew what they were in for if Ramsay was allowed to rule. Notable, too, that Ramsay showed himself to be a fucking coward. I'm all too happy to delight in the pain of helpless victims, but very, 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 very quick to run away when someone who has a sword is approaching him. Ramsay never fought with his troops. Yes, he was on the field, but he was leading from behind. He did not march with them. He sent in Umber. He sent in Karstark. That's it. He's just going to sit there. And this for, ostensibly, his seat. You know, obviously Winterfell is stolen, but he's fighting for what, in theory, should be his home, and he won't even fight for it. He'll send other people to do so. So just an incredible moment of redemption for the Starks writ large. Tiny, tiny bit of redemption for Mel. She did say she saw those Bolton banners fall. Saw Jon Snow at Winterfell. Saw those Bolton banners fall. Hey, Mel. Mel, we never doubted you. We never Never. doubted you. Some redemption for Davos as well, though, in a very, very, very painful form. Davos, he hasn't fully gotten the redemption yet. He has gotten the thing that is giving him clarity that will lead him to now seek redemption. 
the stag yeah. that he made for Shireen. Miraculously unburnt, despite being in Shireen's pyre. It's the Daenerys Targaryen of childhood toys. The unburnt, yeah. you know? Before Davos makes this discovery that allows him to piece together what really happened to identify that Melisandre burned Shireen and is behind the downfall, the death of a girl that he loved. We will see in the season finale a gut-wrenching yeah. confrontation between those two about the very topic. Before that, before he makes the discovery, he's having a chat with Tormund. And it's very charming. It's a very lighthearted, charming scene, but it's right. also really charged. Tormund says... You want to avenge your king, don't you? And Davos says, it wasn't the Boltons who defeated Stannis. It was Stannis himself. This is real progress for Davos mentally. And Tormund is finding common ground here. Well, you love that cunt Stannis. Right. And I love the man he burned. Mance didn't have demons in his skull. He didn't torture people or listen to some red witch. I believed in him. I thought he was the man to lead us through the long night. But I was wrong just like you. Maybe that was our mistake, Davos says, believing in kings. What does Tormund say here? Yeah. Jon Snow's not a king. No, he's not. (laughs) 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 Not yet, guys. But this is a key exchange because it tells us that redemption can come subtly. It can come in the form of newfound understanding and Davos and Tormund are both finding that about their former leaders. After all he's done, after all he's unleashed on the realm, on people, uh, it is disconcerting to watch Littlefinger smirking atop his horse as the Knights of the Vale swarm into the battle, but it's a moment of not insignificant redemption for Littlefinger in a sense. Uh, He's still in the game. He solidified his hold over the veil, making him one of the strongest lords in the realm. And it's not a strength on paper anymore. He's flexed those muscles. He's shown that they'll follow my orders. I can take them into war and they'll do what I say. Yes, he was uh, ostensibly protector of the veil before, but uh, no one had seen it in action. Now we've seen it in action. And he still has some measure of influence over Sansa. The relationship is a lot more even than it was. Who's playing who here? We don't know. But that should not be the case. She, He shouldn't have any tie to her at all. So he's still in the game, meaning he'll have a front row seat to events in the North and at the front lines of the looming Great War. What could go wrong? What could go wrong? We got another battle in this episode. We had the battle for Marine. Marine. Danny versus the Masters. Redemption. What has Danny been saying for the last few episodes as various Dothraki rednecks have fucking tried to say shit to her? She's been like, listen, unburnt, mother of dragons, stormborn, breaker of chains, uh, maker of five minute noodles in two and a half minutes. Titles, titles, titles. That's great. That's theoretical shit. But now Danny is flying with dragons. Her army is assembled and she's ready to raise hell. She is a true queen now. Yes, she has conquered cities before. Yes, uh, you would argue in most of those battles, she's taken people by surprise at Astapor, at Yunkai. Um, Marine, a solid conquest there. But now she is fighting on land and sea with a cavalry, 
She has dragons that were are ready to fulfill her commands. She has arrived as a true world leader. And a great moment, by the way, with her and Tyrion as she is just singeing him, absolutely just like searing into him like, what have you been doing? I go away for two weeks. I come back. The place is a mess. The city's on the rise. The you're great. Si- she's like, the city's on the fucking <laughs> rise. What are you talking about? That's a really um, funny moment. And notable nugget from before the battle. Tyrion asks if Daenerys has a plan. This is after that whole city's on the rise shit. She goes, well, let's see. I'm going to crucify the masters. I will set their fleets to fire, kill, kill every last one of their soldiers and return the cities to the dirt. It's my plan. What do you think? Pretty good, right? And he's like, you know. Sounds like a calm, measured strategy. You once told me you knew what your father was. And he's trying to always, you know, trying to temper this uh, Targaryen tendency towards um, bombastic violence, you know, wrought by fire by just like take that down five notches. (laughs) And she's like, no, no, no. This is this is different. I'm not wantonly burning King's Landing because I'm about to lose a war, killing various civilians. I'm being attacked. My people are being attacked. My holdings are being... This is a defensive war. And those aren't my boats out there lobbing artillery into the city. Those aren't uh, my soldiers out there killing people at the gates. You know, Danny is in the right here. Tyrion, this has been a tough couple of episodes for Tyrion. And then redemption when there's that great moment where the masters, you know, the delegation from the masters come, who we've seen before. Tyrion has been uh, negotiating with them. And they come and they're like, hey, so here you surrender. How's that sound? You walk out of here. Every slave is going back into slavery. We're going to resell them again. Ha 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 ha. You were wrong. And she's like, actually, no, there's my dragon flying over there. I'm going to fucking kill you all. And then Drogon got so big. He's well, I mean, when you let him roam free, and this is, by the way, it is redemption from herself in a sense, because Danny, yes. uh, Marine, not a lot of people have come out of Marine looking good, except Missy and the Worm, really. <laughs> um, Tyrion has made a lot of mistakes, as we've said. Danny has made a ton of mistakes, and one of them was locking up her dragons. The fact that she needed her dragons to subdue the armada of the Masters is a rebuke to her own idea of, well, I've got to lock these dragons up because every, like, two weeks they sometimes kill a goat and a child. Okay, they kill the child. But, you know, it's like that's the this is the price of doing business, Danny. So, um, yeah, redemption in the sense that she has uh, overcome her own mistakes. And then there's Yara and Theon, chased from their homeland by their mad uncle. Yara and Theon offer Daenerys a deal. And she agrees to it. And you could argue it's a better deal than what they would have gotten had Yara won the King's Smoot straight out. Right. They get help murdering Euron. They get the backing of the most powerful army in the world. In return, all they have to do is swear fealty to Daenerys. Theon says, your answers defeated ours and took the Iron Isles. We ask you to give them back. Daenerys says, that's all? And Yara says, we'd like you to help us murder an uncle or two We, you know, who don't think a woman's fit to rule. And Daenerys says, that's OK. That's reasonable. I find Danny's like smirk. Yeah. To we need some help murdering some folks right. like deeply concerning. Yeah, I'm sure Tyrion feels the same way. <laughs> <laughs> and he tries to he tries to pull it back. He's like, what if. Hold on. 
What if everyone starts demanding their independence? Let's not set a precedent here. And Daenerys says, well, she's not demanding. She's asking. The others are free to ask as well. Our fathers were evil men, all of us here. They left the world worse than they found it. We're not going to do that. We're going to leave the world better than we found it. Ah, the, the idealism of Daenerys Targaryen. And then she lays out her terms. You will support my claim as queen, queen of the Seven Kingdoms. Respect the integrity of the Seven Kingdoms. No more reaving, raiding, raping. And Yara says, oh, but uh, that's our way of life. Daenerys says, no more. And Yara agrees. And how's this for a sweetener? Daenerys says, and I imagine your offer is free of any marriage demands. And then Yara, extremely savage grin on her face. Well, I never demand, but I'm up for anything, really. (laughs) (laughs) So good. Danny smiles appreciatively. And like she's definitely considering it. Poor Theon, once again, just witnessing his sister sweet-talking beautiful women. Yeah, and he's just like, fucking Jesus. There's that like really like small and subtle but savage and sad moment where when Danny's sort of coming to understand what they're asking, she looks to Theon, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and he's why just like, you, why don't you want to rule? What's I'm wrong not with fit you? to rule. I'm not fit to rule. And then there's Tyrion. Tyrion, after trying to placate the masters of Yunkai, Astapor, and Volantis in Danny's absence— and getting roundly dunked on, like, for all four quarters. Um, the triumph of the Battle Marine is a sweet moment, and he gets to deploy that trademark wit after Danny has flown off and is burning ships. He says, thank you for the Amato. Our queen does love ships. Now, last time we spoke, we made a pact. You violated that pact. You declared war upon us, though our queen does have a forgiving nature. This cannot be forgiven. And then, of course, they select one of the masters to be killed. But actually, it's a trick because they're going to kill two of them. And then Tyrion walks up to the survivor and he puts his hand gently upon the man's shoulder and says, Tell your people what happened here. Tell them you live by the grace of Her Majesty. When they come forward with notions of retribution or ideas about returning the slave cities to their former glory, remind them what happened when Daenerys Storborn and her dragons came to Marine. And then my favorite redeemers, Missy and the Worm. True. Neither got to tell Tyrion, hey, I told you so, motherfucker, about his ill-advised middle path with the masters, but it's unnecessary because Daenerys really fucking dunked on him pretty hard. Projectiles are slamming into the side of the Great Pyramid, thundering through the interior. Tyrion, over this din, says, without a hint of irony, despite appearances, I think you'll find the cities on the rise. Perhaps we should take shelter. Daenerys says, the city is on the rise. Oh, interesting. And Tyrion says, Marine is strong. Uh, Commerce has returned to the market. (laughs) The people are behind you. (laughs) Well, not all the people. No ruler that ever lived had the support of all the people. But the rebirth of Marine is the cause of this violence. The masters cannot let Marine succeed. Because if Marine succeeds, a city without slavery, a city without masters, it proves that no one needs a master. This is, by the way, like a direct plagiarism of Missy and the Worm's whole argument to Tyrion. Uh, so, shouts to Missy and the Worm. Love and you guys. Shouts you to, were right! They were. Shouts to Grey Worm for that amazing, like, double throat slash move. That's good. Takes out two guys at once, one motion, kind of like a, the way you keep your wrist and elbow, you know, yeah. frisbee. A frisbee-like exactly. motion. Exactly. With a follow-through. Impeccable. And Supple also, wrist. guys, just a moment here. Shouts to Rhaegal and Viserion. They look fantastic. Flying free, joining their sibling in the air. Danny's three dragons. It's beautiful. United. Battle and in flight. Gorgeous. Movies, sports, TV shows, gaming. Play bass adds dynamic pulse-pounding sound to whatever's playing on your TV. And streams your favorite music when it's off. Yet, it's low-profile design. 
practically disappears beneath your television. And now, for the first time ever, Sonos is offering listeners of Binge Mode this podcast. 10% off one order of $2,500 or less for any product on Sonos.com. This offer is available for a limited time only. Cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. Just use the promo code BINGE10, capital B-I-N-G-E-1-0, at Sonos.com to receive this exclusive offer. Jason. Yeah. Maybe that was our mistake. I guess so. Believing in kings. Maybe we always should have believed in bastards. I love them. In light of this episode's name, the bastard or former bastard status of the two lead commanders in the Winterfell battle, and the sheer number of times that Ramsay ejaculates in his pants while calling John Bastard. Bastard. (laughs) Please assemble the conclave and head to the Citadel. Teach us everything we need to know about the other notable bastards in Westeros' history. Let's talk about notable bastards, because that's the subject of this Citadel. How about the Sand Snakes? Listen, I know they didn't come off that great, but the famed bastard daughters of Oberyn Martell, some of whom he uh, got upon the loins of Elaria, his famed paramour, are well known and feared throughout the Seven Kingdoms. There are eight of them, including Obara, Obara Sand. The eldest daughter of an old town prostitute in the books, just merely a commoner, they say in the shows. She is well-versed in the use of a spear and speaks in a very wooden voice, Obara Sand. There's Nim, daughter of a noble woman from Essos, the kind of the thinker of the group. Then there is Tyene, a.k.a. titties on them prison bars, the eldest of Oberyn's daughters, and she loves to throw it up on the glass, you guys. Then there's Sorella. We know that she is studying at the Citadel under an assumed name, aha, known as the uh, trainee Alaras at the Citadel. Ooh, I hope hope we get this. But I think we'll get this plot line, by the way. Sorry, that's a spoiler. Um, Then there's Elia, another daughter of Elaria. Oberyn, when he is writing his poem in season four and Cersei comes in and is like, oh, what are you doing, writing a poem? He's like, yeah, I'm writing a fucking poem to my daughter. (laughs) He's writing it to Elia, who is a willful girl. And then Obella, Doria, and Lareza, of which nothing is really known except that he says their names. Probably the most uh, famous and historically significant bastards in the story pre-Jon Snow are the bastards of Aegon the Unworthy, a.k.a. Aegon the Four. They were called his great bastards because these were the bastards that he had with noble women, not his wife. Lots of interesting characters here, all notable for being involved in the various Blackfire rebellions on either the loyalist or rebel side. There's the Three-Eyed Raven, a.k.a. Brynden Rivers, son of Aegon the Unworthy and Melissa Blackwood. He had an infamous career as a spy master and Hand of the King to the Targaryen regime. His exploits in the Battle of the Redgrass Field helped end the first Blackfire Rebellion. He was sent to the Wall at the beginning of the reign of Aegon V, also known as Egg, as a child, rose to Lord Commander, became the Three-Eyed Raven, and has a tree grown out of his ass before he died. Then there's Daemon Waters, later known as Daemon Blackfire, perhaps the most famous of the great bastards. Aegon IV gave him Blackfire, Sword of Aegon the Conqueror. Uh, Daemon then rose in rebellion against the regime of King Darren II. Starting the first Blackfire Rebellion, he died at Redgrass Field under the withering hail of weirwood arrows fired by Brynden Rivers' crew. Then there's Agor Rivers, a.k.a. Bittersteel, son of Aegon IV and Barbara Bracken. The lifelong rival. Melissa and Barbara. What are these names all of a sudden? What are you talking about? The Brackens and the Blackwoods. 
Melissa and Barbara. Yeah, and (laughs) Jessica and Jenny and anyway. Um, The lifelong rival of Brendan Rivers, this guy. Uh, This probably has not a little bit to do with the fact that the Brackens and the Blackwoods, the two bastards' mothers, have a centuries-long feud running between those two families over land and the cutting down of trees and various other things. Um, He would later flee to Essos after the Battle of Redgrass Field. He fled to Essos where he founded the mercenary company known as the Golden Company. And there's Gendry, one of the numerous bastards of Robert Baratheon, a blacksmith, famously a virgin, rowing somewhere in in a boat with leech marks on his testicles. I miss Gendry. Everyone does. Gendry's odds heading into season seven to be sitting on the Iron Throne Stupid. at the end of the season, he's like has the second best odds after makes Cersei. Absolutely no sense. What do you do in Vegas? What do you know what that do we you, don't? No, it's strange. Maester. Yeah. I thought he was the man to lead us through the long night, but I was wrong. So let's make things right. Let's share seven of our favorite insights and observations from this episode, lightning round style. You go first. What's number one? Number one, what do we make of this utterly chilling moment between John and Melisandre? Before the battle, John goes into Melisandre's tent. She's just gazing into the flames as she is wont to do. And he says, if I do, if I fall, don't bring me back. She's like, well, I've, I got to try. I'm ordering you not to bring me back. I'll have to try. You're in my camp. I'm the commander. I serve the Lord of Light. If he's like, bring him back, I got to bring him back. <laughs> And then John says, how do you know what he commands? I interpret his signs as well I can. If the Lord didn't want me to bring you back, how did I bring you back? I have no power. Only what he gives me. And he gave me you, the chosen one. And John says, why? She don't know why, John, but it's a good question. She says, I don't know. Maybe you're only needed for this small part of this plan and nothing else. Maybe he brought you here to die again. What kind of God would do something like that? The one we've got. Melisandre, a little cynical in her... Older, 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 older age. I think that scene has a couple purposes. Yes. One. To add drama to, to add the fact that Jon Snow, who yeah. recently died and came back to life. Right like, before a huge yeah. battle. Like, everyone's going to be, it's reasonable <laughs> as a viewer to sit there thinking, all right, well, like, he isn't going to die because they wouldn't do that again. Right. And then if he does, she'll just bring him back again. So we're fine here. They obviously want to introduce the possibility that maybe it won't be fine and then also, just in terms of John's character and his point of view, his introspective nature and how he feels about this, he's really struggling with this. He doesn't want to be the chosen one. He right. doesn't he's not comfortable with being marked in this way, with being viewed as a god. And so showing us, yeah, that he does not want to embrace this sort of eternal existence, this this existence that's basically something other than human, yeah. other than normal, it weirdly, conversely, actually reminds us of his humanity. And a question here from at ZachTheMac.com. Why not have Mel try to bring Rick on back? Probably because, like, horses and men trampled over his body in the midst of a huge battle and he's, like, all fucked up. Like, legitimately, his body is destroyed. I was shocked at the relative quality of his corpse. I mean, he's pelted with arrows. Right. He but, should be jello on the field. Well, I mean, you don't get, I think like under the furs, like if they pull that down, he's his like, it's, it's rough. It's just fucking goo in there. 
Like a thousand, like five thousand men ran over him and fought. Yeah, he's he should be fertilizer yeah. in the field right now. Yes. Number two. How does Sansa know that Ramsay didn't feed the dogs? She rides away before he makes that proclamation to John and Co. Here is what Ramsay says right after Sansa rides off. Yeah. She's a fine woman, your sister. I look forward to having her back in my bed. And you're all fine-looking men. My yeah. dogs are desperate to meet you. I haven't fed them for seven days. They're ravenous. I wonder which parts they'll try first. Now, my thing with this has always just been, like, John or someone else told her. Right. And, like, when you're heading into a battle, you talk about things that yeah. were said. I mean, the things that the battle commander said in the meeting right. would be widely shared amongst but people. for what it's worth, just in terms of, you know, we like to talk about the context in which an episode was greeted, people struggled with this. They did. Because... They, they either thought that it was a mistake to have her in possession of information that she didn't directly hear or that it was inconsistent to say, well, someone probably just told her when part of the narrative of this episode is that they're not sharing all the information right. with each other. So interesting little thing there. But regardless, I think the real takeaway is clear. Feed your pets, people. Proper, proper feeding is important. Number three, Tormund and company, the wildling bros, Demdalba, all them homies. They did pretty good considering they've never heard of a double envelopment, which is just basically like a circle. And then Tormund gets to stab Small John Umber with like a piece of an elk antler, yeah. a sharpened elk antler. By Small John? After biting his neck. Really making up for for the great John dying off screen by giving us a disgusting Woof. small John death. Shouts to the small John's really fake looking beard. <laughs> Number four, part of this delightful little exchange between Tormund and Davos yeah. includes Davos <laughs> saying, talking about demons, talking about Stannis, tortured man, you know. He had demons in his soul whispering foul things. You saw these demons? Tormund wants to know. And Davos is like, wait, dude, what? And, and it's just very funny. And it's a dark and intense episode. And this little moment of levity where Davos is like, no, it's just a, it's a matter of speaking. Like, it's a it's a thing people say, guys, not actual demons. They, the wildlings do not have metaphors. They are extremely sincere people. Very literal. Yes. Uh, number five, Ramsey to Sansa. You can't kill me. I'm part of you now. And then there was this set off uh, a pregnancy speculation, yes. which was interesting um, for a while, but also got like wearying because obviously they've compressed the time frame, but there's no way Sansa would not be showing if that were the case by the time the battle took place. And also like how, how the hell would Ramsay know? How would Ramsay know? Anyway. I think it's actually so much darker for it to be what he actually meant. Right. It's which is just that much the, more evil to be what he actually The scars meant. he left in her body and in her soul and on her life will never disappear. Number six, RIP to 1 1. Last giant. Guys, tough times for the giants. Mags, we barely knew you. Mag. What, is a, what does a giant smell like? 1 1, you were a brave, true friend. Yeah. I don't think he smells good. Right. But. People might be interested to know. Vegetarian, right? Yeah, they're vegetarian. <laughs> I mean, what, you know, like what, they're very gentle. You can't grow that size if you're a meat eater. The you think moment, about elephants and stuff. The moment actually right before Ramsey issues the fatal arrow that pierces 1-1 through the eye and thus the brain, when 1-1 kind of collapses because he has so many arrows in him after breaking through the gate, and John looks over and he's like reaching for him. There's such a tenderness yeah. in that expression and... Ramsey, it was sad. Ramsey ruins it as he ruins everything. Ramsey's a piece of shit. And then number seven, 
Rickon, listen, here's my thing, okay? And this is really, if you want to know what takes this episode down several notches in my mind, it's Rickon running in a straight line from Ramsey shooting arrows. If one person is shooting arrows at you from a range of 60 yards, you really have to try to get hit by that arrow. It's like, look back. Okay, he's fired the arrow. Now I'll move over two feet. <laughs> I mean, that's all it is. <laughs> you know, like you have to run into the arrow for that to happen. And so that bothers me. But you, come on, Rickon. You just got to juke, my guy. Rickon. Get into a stance and freaking juke. Make the make the defender miss. Come on. Despite now being the size of a starting defensive end in like, the NFL. Absolutely. Worst measurables in Very bad. NFL combine history. Yeah. Botch the three cone. <laughs> no dexterity. Zero. The explosiveness drills. <laughs> Embarrassing. What's He's going to plummet. It's not, it's really, you know, it's not good. It's, you know, the hard knocks with Rick on is going to be bad. Man, he's the one who you're like, Ricky, come here. You're getting a lot of time with him and you know, <laughs> you know it's because he's going to get cut. <laughs> I just like the coach is like, okay, you go out 10 yards and then you dog leg in. Now let's see it. Go. And then Rick on just runs straight down the bit. Ricky. Yeah, we got to cut Ricky, guys. He's, just, I mean, he's, it's not good. Decent speed in the flat, but the guy can't, he can't do anything else. He just literally just run the skinny post. That's, That's it. it. That's it. That's not going to work in today's NFL. <laughs> Mal. Yeah. It's time to crown this episode's champion. So pour out some sour goat's milk. Mm, always pour do. Pour that shit right in my mouth. It's stronger <laughs> than any grape water, you southern twats. Like sucking on, let the goat milk ferment. Each episode, we're going to honor the person who played the game and advance his or her cause in some tangible way. And this week, the winner of our champion's purse is... House Stark. Yes! Winter is come. What a beautiful episode for, in many ways, the heroes of the story. Thank I God. mean, John Sansa got back... Winterfell. They took back their home. Haven't been there since season one. They took back their name their in history, many ways. Their what, honor. What their name means, what their sigil represents. They took down the bad guys, avenging the Red Wedding, avenging Rob, avenging everything bad that has happened in this region since the story began. Yeah, Rickon died. That's not great that part's not great but just truly an amazing moment to see the winterfell battlements draped in stark colors again to see the direwolf sigil adorning the walls it's incredible it's it's a chilling moment no matter how how many times you see it well (laughs) friends we better keep a clear head keep it clear we can never sleep the night before a battle And we are about to head to our last binge mode rewatch recording of this 60 episode stretch. More sour goat's milk for you. We, (laughs) that's your sweet Robin breast milk sound. Let's listen. I love a Taking it right from the goat. I love a milk from the teat, directly (laughs) from the teat. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today and that you will join us again next time when we will be discussing. Season six. Yeah. Episode 10. The incomparable, masterful, the winds of winter. Until then. 
Happy shitting! And now we've got uh, Ricky Stark, 6'7", 125 pounds, from Winterfell. Nice speed in the flat. Not a lot known about this kid. He's been kind of like kept under lock and keys. His, his agent's trying to keep his draft stock up. Let's take a look at him now. The slow wolf. <laughs> slow wolf. I've never seen a guy compete in furs before, Mal. Have you ever seen anything like this? It's interesting that instead of wearing cleats, he chose to wear heavy Uggs. Very strange. An homage to Tom Brady, perhaps, and yet not great for the quick cuts. Here we go. Let's see it. Here we go. And Rigon is just running straight. He's just going to keep going, I guess. <laughs> 